Hey everybody, welcome to Therapy for Humans, the podcast where if you're not careful, you might just pick up some tips on how to survive as a more or less psychologically intact human in the modern world. My name is Rowan, and I'll be your host. Welcome back, episode 9 of Therapy for Humans. Glad you can join us. It's really fucking cold out, at least in Durango. I don't know where you are, but man, sun's out though. That's what we love about Durango. 300 days of sunshine a year. Okay, so in keeping with the uh, holiday theme that we've been having going on, um, we're going to talk about uh, this email that came in. This person said, uh, dealing with the realization that your family or extended family will never be a Norman Rockwell painting or a Bing Crosby Christmas song. How do you put that aside and make something else work for you? Wow. Okay. So there's a lot of different directions we could go with this. Um, we all have our concept in our heads of what we feel like our lives should look like and what our families should look like and how all those people should behave. All of it informed by our socialization and family history, as well as a heavy dose of popular culture. So this person re- references Norman Rockwell and Bing Crosby. A quick Google search will reveal lots of stories about Norman Rockwell, that painter of iconic family scenes, as being a self-absorbed, negligent father. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like Facebook. We put out there what we want people to see. A nice family gathered around the Thanksgiving table or the Christmas tree, smiling faces, the illusion of utter civility. But we all know that there's a lot more that we're not seeing. We're not seeing... You know, the grandfather that get fucking hammered in the pantry and came out and lit the cake on fire and whatever. I mean, shit happens. We don't put it out on Facebook because we don't want people to know about it. But that gives the impression for those of us who look at Facebook that everybody else is all fine and dandy and we're the ones that are all fucked up. So here's the thing that you already know, but you can't seem to truly incorporate. Even those people are not like those people. It's all a big fucking act. So sure, most families have moments that are reminiscent of those postcard scenes, but they are generally few and far between. There's been some backlash to this in the past few decades. One example of this is the so-called redneck culture made famous by Jeff Foxworthy and Duck Dynasty and spinoff shows like my red, my, what is it called? My Big Redneck Wedding. It's a fine documentary series. I highly recommend it if you haven't checked it out. But my point is, these folks have decided that they are definitely not like those Norman Rockwell scenes, and they're okay with that. And more than that, they flaunt their differentness, their, in this case, their alcoholic, racist, misogynist ways that challenge any and all to take issue with them. They know they don't fit into what the wider society is trying so desperately to hold on to, so they jump headfirst in the other direction. There might be some lessons in there somewhere. Rather than focusing on what's not the way you thought it would be, look at what's working for you and the other people in your family. So this can look differently depending on what it is that you expected versus what you have in front of you. And I'm talking about family gatherings mainly. So there's a difference between a family that's just kind of selfish and petty and backbiting versus a family with serious addiction and or mental health issues versus a family that has suffered an unexpected loss or other hardship. And all of those things would need to be treated differently um, and with varying degrees of tolerance. I hope that makes sense. So I guess what I'm saying is this. Most of us blame ourselves to some degree for things not being the way they quote-unquote should be. 
unless you're the kind of person who blames everyone else, in which case you should probably go talk to somebody about that. But what I'm saying is that the level of self-blame that goes on should match up with the situation. So if your family are all a bunch of self-absorbed assholes who can't wait to lay into one another at the first opportunity, then maybe it's time to start your own holiday rituals that do not involve them. If there are drug and alcohol addictions that make your family time miserable, then urge those folks to seek help and then distance yourself until they do. Same thing goes to some extent for family members with mental health issues if they are not addressing them. If they're doing the best they can to address those issues and they're still assholes, then maybe have a little more compassion for that, but you still have to set boundaries. You still have to survive in this and hopefully long-term survive in this, which means that you need to come up with sustainable options for yourself. Um, so the last example I gave was a family that has experienced some significant loss. I don't want to get into the nuance of what could be labeled a significant loss, but the reality is that no matter how beloved and elderly family member or friend was, that's a different kind of loss than the unexpected death of someone who was not anywhere near the average life expectancy age. And unfortunately, lots of people lose loved ones to accident, illness, suicide, and this looks very different at these holiday times when family is supposed to be all together. And there I use the word that's supposed to be. Okay, that's three words. Uh, but those three words will fuck you up more than anything else because there's this concept that something is wrong and someone is missing who is supposed to be here. And that is a profoundly brutal experience. And I do believe that this expectation that we carry is part of what fuels our pain. We expect that our spouses will be with us until we are both old. We expect that our parents will be with us until they are old. We expect that our children and siblings will live normal lifespans. When this expectation is dashed, it breaks us. It shakes our concept of normality, safety, and stability. And there is no other time of the year when this is felt more acutely than at the holidays. Fueled, again, I think, by these concepts of, you know, everyone should be home and together for the holidays. So in these instances, we have to really take care of ourselves and be very careful about the kind of self-blame or guilt that bubbles up around the loss of those that aren't there. Uh, there's a woman in town here who specializes in grief, and she said something one day at a training that really made an impression on me. Um, she was talking about working with a mother who lost her son in an accident when he was, I don't know, early 20s. And the mom was obviously devastated by this. Uh, the therapist said, you placed these expectations on your son's life, that he would grow and live to be a certain age and that he would get married and have children and all of the things that we assume will unfold in a person's lifetime. But maybe that was your story for him rather than his story. Maybe his whole experience here was that he would live to be 21 and then die in an accident. Now, one of the reasons this made such an impression on me is because I thought that was a really fucking insensitive thing to say to a grieving mother. There was almost a whiff of blame, you know, kind of blaming her for her grief that I didn't like. But it stuck with me, and over the years, it stayed with me. And I do connect with this idea that we place expectations on the lives and even lifespans of those around us that are really not ours to place. And in part, it's those expectations that fuel our grief because it's an interruption of the path that we had assumed would unfold. So there's an inevitability about this. Of course, we're going to assume that our loved ones are going to live more or less 
whatever you want to say, normal lives and, and normal have normal lifespans. And I'm not suggesting we should move through life with this sort of fatalistic attitude of like, well, we're all going to die maybe tomorrow. And so there's no point in planning or there's no point in assuming anything. Um, so having said all of that, though, I do think that there's a little place here where some of us might find a moment of peace that maybe if we're going to live in the realm of assuming things will work out one way or another based on what the norm seems to be, that this person's life unfolded for them, period. Not in a way that was the right way or the wrong way or expected or unexpected, but it just simply was. And if we can let go of the idea that something is fundamentally wrong with the universe, that might ease the burden just a little. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that loss won't hurt. It will always hurt. And anyone affected by an unexpected loss will be fundamentally changed by it. I don't know. It's just one thought. Anyway, to get back to the email, if your family gathering doesn't look the way you think it should or the way you want it to, then you have two choices. You can work on letting go of this, exp this expectation of the way you think these things are supposed to be, or you can get to work creating something that feels better to you in some way, recognizing that it may never be what you truly want. So maybe dial that back to what you need and what's achievable and try to find some comfort in that. Okay, so our next email, um, this woman says, triggered seems to be the word of the year. I hear it all the time. It feels to me like this word means something different depending on who's using it. So can you clarify? Sure, and yes, I agree. This word is getting overused. We hear a lot um, uh, references to it when someone is offended or upset by something that someone has said to them. Um, Clinically, I would not use that word exactly in that way. Instead, I would reserve that word for when someone is catapulted back to a traumatic event uh, by something that happens in the present. So this could be something that is said, but it could also be a sound or a smell or a circumstance that affects them in such a profound way that for a short period of time, they may feel like they are back in that traumatic event. So... We hear a lot about um, around the 4th of July, we hear these public service announcements about fireworks and war veterans and um, that the sounds and feelings of percussion from the fireworks can be hard to handle for someone who's been in a war zone. Uh, that's a stereotypical example, but um, it's uh, it's certainly an accurate and uh, way too common thing that, that happens. Um, but people can be triggered by anything, um, depending on what kind of trauma they've been through and and what made that up. So ambulance, sirens, sights and smells in a hospital, minor or not so minor car accidents, the sight of blood, all of these things are common triggers for people who have either been through traumatic injury or who were there when another person was hurt or killed. Um, and just a side note here, I think it's important to note that uh, sometimes being along for the ride, for lack of a better term, of somebody else's trauma can affect you in a profound way. Um, sometimes we hear the term vicarious trauma. Therapists go through this a lot. When we hear stories of other people's trauma over and over again, day in and day out, um, it can start affecting us. But um, it can also be a single event thing. When I was working up at the Fort Lewis College Counseling Center, um, it was not unusual for students to come in who had been um, kind of unintentional first responders to accidents. Um, so meaning that they were just on the scene when something happened, they, 
they came up on a, a car accident when they were driving or there was um, a bad accident, you know, of someone that was climbing or hiking when they were happy to be around. And so they ended up being a first responder to that event. And, and so they kind of sustained their own trauma, um, even though they were there helping someone else through their trauma. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I just thought it was anyway, useful to put out there. So basically maybe we can all lend a hand here and just stop overusing this word so that we can preserve its meaning, um, for circumstances that warrant that when someone is really and truly triggered is a profoundly disorienting and frightening experience that can shake their sense of well-being and even their sense of sanity. So the next time you get upset about a Facebook post you see, or someone says something that's offensive to you, Maybe look for another word like offended or pissed off or even the tried and true, hey, fuck off and leave the concept of being triggered alone until you really need it. If we keep using this word when we feel something else, then pretty soon it really won't be there when we truly need it. Okay, here's our last email of the episode. Uh, my wife of five years wants to open our marriage and I'm concerned about losing her, my own jealousy and possibly even finding someone else more alluring than her. Our marriage is okay, as it is, and I'm just not sure this is a good idea. What would you do? Question mark. Well, I'm not going to talk about what I would do, <laughs> but I can talk about uh, opening your relationship in general. So I, I work with a lot of couples who have either opened their relationship or are thinking about it. Um, and there's a broad range of things to consider around this, uh, so I'm going to speak in kind of general terms. And, and I guess to get back to what would I would, would do, this is what I would do if I was interested in opening my marriage, which I'm not. So I would urge you to seek some counseling around this. Um, it doesn't need to be like long-term, you know, months and years of work. Um, but it sounds like you're unsure about this. And I think it's important for you to get some clarity, uh, obviously as well as, as your wife. So make sure that the counselor you're seeing, um, is on board with what you both want and that they don't have their own agenda. So in other words, if you sit down with a therapist that is opposed to polyamory or open relationships, then they may move you in a monogamous direction, which may be okay for you if you don't want to open your marriage, but may not be okay for your partner. Um, so basically there's no way to kind of open your relationship. It's either open or it's not. Um, now, that's not to say that they you can't be as creative as you want around how this is structured. She can see other people and you can choose not to, for instance, or you can decide if you want each other to meet and have contact with your other partners or not. If one of one or both of you are bisexual or heteroflexible, you can look into bringing a third party into the relationship or a fourth party or a whole fucking party. Um, you can look into swinging or partner swap situations. Um, some relationships outside the primary one are only romantic in nature. Others are purely sexual with no emotional contact context. Um, there's really no limit to the options, but here's the rub. No pun intended. If she wants to see other people and you don't, then that may be a deal breaker for you. And you need to decide where you stand on that. One issue that I've seen come up a lot, um, or not a lot, but sometimes is that a couple will open their relationship and one of them will get a lot more attention than the other. More dates, more hookups, more partners, and that can feel really shitty to the other partner, um, especially if the partner getting less attention is the one who wanted to open it up to begin with. Uh, so that's one thing to consider. How would that look if that happens in your relationship? Open relationships are much more common than you may think. I would bet that you know folks who have an arrangement like this, and you probably know nothing about it. 
So stow your puritanical bullshit judgment around this. Um, because basically whatever works for those two people in that relationship is what works for them. Um, if you are in, or if you're considering an open relationship, you have to be able to communicate at a very high level. So like, for instance, when you're out together and your partner sees another human that they find attractive and makes a comment to that effect, do you get pissed off and upset and insecure and all of that? Or do you just turn around and look at what they're looking at so you can cast your hot or not judgment on it? If you're not able to listen to your partner without getting defensive, if you get jealous easily and are not able to voice that appropriately, then you're probably not cut out for this relationship structure. On the other hand, if you feel like you and your partner both want to see other people and you're both clear on what the goals are for that, then it can add a level of intimacy and satisfaction that may be really desirable for you both. Um, Dan Savage of the Savage Lovecast, if you're not listening to that, you're missing out. He's fucking awesome. Uh, he talks about new relationship energy. He calls it NRE. And this is the drug that many of us in long-term relationships crave like crack. It's one. It's the one thing that you cannot have if you are in a long-term monogamous relationship. It's the trade-off. There's no middle ground there. And NRE is also the danger when one opens their relationship. Because if one or both partners find someone else that they really click with, that NRE can show up and derail the fuck out of your best laid plans. No pun intended to keep your primary relationship intact while you play with other people. So your five-year marriage may not stand up to this new relationship energy on many levels, so you have to be talking about this. If you want your marriage to last, then you need to be clear about that relationship being the primary relationship. And most people in open relationships have this clarity. They do have this primary relationship uh, concept. And that primary relationship takes precedence over all of the other ones, period. So if one partner raises a flag and says, hey, I feel left out, or I feel like this other relationship that you're in is becoming more important to you than us, that's a full stop until you both figure it out. The danger is when one of you is steeped in that NRE, you may not be able to hear your partner. So sometimes when I'm working with a couple that is getting ready to make this leap, I'll have them write letters to either themselves or to the relationship reminding them of where they're at right now and why they want to be with their primary partners and what they may need to hear if they're losing their way in that. So opening your relationship is kind of like having a baby. If you like your life pretty well the way it is, if you don't feel like there's some kind of gaping hole that needs to be filled, no pun intended, then it's probably best to leave it alone. If on the other hand, you feel like your relationship could be elevated by the addition of other partners, then maybe it's something to consider. It's a little unrealistic to think that one person is supposed to fulfill all of our needs for the rest of our lives once we commit to them. So depending on what those needs are, opening your relationship may be of benefit. So dear emailer, keep talking with your wife. Find a therapist who is willing to support what the two of you want and who can help the two of you clarify this. And I wish you both luck. That brings us to the end of our episode today. Thanks for joining me. If you have a situation or a question that you want to have answered on the podcast, just get in touch. You can call the podcast at 1-844-387-2646. That's 1-844-Durango. You can also email me at rowan at therapyforhumanspodcast.com. So until next week, take care of yourself and take care of each other.